0: Good morning, friends. I want to invite you to open the Bible to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. And as you are turning there, I'd just like to say it is very good to be here this morning. It's good to see some familiar faces, to reconnect, um, former students, former teachers, uh, get to spend time with some some good friends that that God has brought into my life And um, it's uh, an honor to be here, Dr. Allen. Thank you very much for the invitation. And this morning, as we look at Psalm 63, I want us to reflect on satisfaction in God, on the desert journey of faith and biblical scholarship. The Christian life is sometimes not what we imagine. And indeed, Christian ministry is often not what we imagine. Many of us are in this room or watching this message because we took steps in faith, right? Trusting that God would lead us in this lifelong pursuit of himself and the building up of his church. But we all have our John the Baptist moments, right? We think about Matthew's gospel, John sitting in prison thinking to himself, Jesus, is this really the plan? And perhaps you have found yourself in harm's way, thinking, Jesus, is this really the plan? But as John the Baptist found out, and as the apostles would later find out, this is Jesus' plan, that hardship is the way of Christ. And in fact, we should not be surprised when the Christian life feels like carrying a cross. But I think we get that right? I mean, we're at a seminary. I think you guys get that. We all signed up for cross-carrying. We knew it was going to be hard, um, but perhaps we didn't know what kind of hard. I know when I was sitting in seminary and when I was listening to chapel speakers and I thought about the hardness of the Christian life and Christian ministry, deep down, um, I would have said, yeah, Christian ministry is hard because of other people's problems, But I'm going to be working to fix those, so really, there's not an issue. And I didn't realize that the hard work of the Christian life and ministry would be dealing with me. I didn't realize that there would be profound seasons of isolation, challenges, that would sometimes leave you feeling betrayed. Maybe I knew that was coming as a seminarian, you know, as as somebody sitting in a chapel. Maybe I knew that was coming. I I feel sure I read a textbook on it. And I probably wrote an essay on an exam talking about how it would be hard. But as we've all come to realize in life, there is a big difference between knowing something and experiencing it, and they can leave you in very different places, right? And so as we all wind our ways through life on our journey toward heavenly Zion— there will be desert roads to walk. There will be paths through the wilderness. And in fact, some of you may be walking one right now. That's crazy, right? How can you be walking a a desert road in seminary? How can you be experiencing a life that's spiritually dry or isolated? You're surrounded by Christians and Christian books and Christian classes and mentors and opportunity for ministry. Well, perhaps it happens slowly. And I've observed this in my own lifetime and working with students. Um, you know, the first research paper that first semester in, in Bible college, that first semester in seminary, I mean, like, it's awesome. You're in the bigs. You're here. You're, you're reading theology books. You're writing theology papers. I mean, it's just great. And then the next semester, the exegesis drives you to a stack of commentaries and peer-reviewed articles. And all of a sudden, your eyes are getting bigger, and you're thinking, what am I doing? And then perhaps a few semesters down, you're like, why am I here? What is this for? How is this peer-reviewed article helping me love Jesus? Do I need to even be here? And all of a sudden, the panic sets in. And perhaps with all of the irony of Coleridge's ancient mariner, you look around and think, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. I'm in this sea that looks like it should sustain me, that it should give me something, but it's dry. And I'm dying of thirst on a raft in the midst of water. And you might look around and see resources and podcasts and articles and chapel sermons and mentors and mission trips and all of these wonderful things. But friends, your soul might be saying, I need something else. I need something more. Well, if this feels familiar to you, I want to encourage you, you are on the right path. And in fact, you are correct. You do need something more. You do need something else. And so what are we to do? How are we to faithfully navigate those desert roads of faith and biblical scholarship? I would say let's follow the example of our Lord Jesus in the wilderness who took up the Old Testament Scriptures and reflected on them. And so as we find ourselves perhaps plodding along a desert single-track path, a clear voice comes alongside. Psalm 63 reveals to us the words of a fellow desert traveler who did not lose his way, who found satisfaction in his God, reflecting on who God is. And how he is to trust in him. And so, in this psalm that we're getting ready to, to read, we're given an inside perspective into David's satisfaction in God. The title of the psalm gives indication that David wrote this when in the wilderness, uh, I would say, running from Absalom. And it was likely um, a desert exile that prompted this psalm that reveals to us David's response to God. And so let's turn our attention to the words of David, to Psalm 63, hearing three exhortations, three encouragements from a fellow desert traveler to guide us in our seasons of walking in the wilderness. Let's read together a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This psalm encourages us in these opening verses to seek God earnestly and honestly. To seek God earnestly and honestly. So the psalm opens with this clear vision of the destination. Oh God, you are my God. Perhaps words that you have sung your whole life, perhaps words that you are familiar with. But let's just think about what are these words? What a moment of clarity What a grounding reality for our desert road weariness in a world full of clarion voices calling us to other purposes, to other pursuits, begging for our allegiances. These words grab hold of us and remind us who we are and where we are going or who we are seeking. They are like a theological compass, right, orienting our lives, And this is not David giving some kind of uh, existential awareness of some transcendent transcendent power. He's not just kind of saying, oh God, who's out there? It's covenant knowledge. The God of the psalmist is the God of Abraham and his offspring who promised, I will be their God. God. And the God of Exodus 6 who said, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. David's opening cry is an act of locating himself within the covenant promises given to God's people. And it is this God that he earnestly seeks, the covenant-making God, the covenant-keeping God, that is his desire. And so I would ask you to do something that's probably a bit out of the ordinary for this context. I would invite you to pray these words with me as we just stop and following David's example, let's pray together. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. So let's join me if you would. Let's pray together out loud. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. Now, I realize that this exercise may seem a little elementary for a setting like this, but I think Christian philosopher James Sire is helpful when he reminds us that the foundation of all Christian knowledge begins with this simple utterance, God is God and I am not. And so as we make this basic confession, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, we're not only removing ourselves from the center of the universe and putting ourselves in God's seat, but we are also rejecting any counterfeits for which we might be tempted to exchange. So when we're saying, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, what we're also saying is, I am not seeking recognition. I am not seeking publication. I am not seeking validation. I am not seeking fame, security, or wealth. I am seeking you. David's seeking in Psalm 63 is framed within the context of deprivation and want. Not only does David know who he's seeking, he is all too acutely aware of why he needs him, right? So David's soul, this word that we encounter multiple times in this psalm, uh, nephesh, this source of life that uh, many commentators would say is significant because sometimes it's associated with the neck, breath, this idea that David's soul thirsts and yearns for God like a desert traveler. And there's no attempt to dress up the situation, right? David's not trying to keep his cool. He's not trying to portray himself as having it together. This is desperation. In language, you can almost feel the desert grit in his throat as he writes these words. The circumstances are desperate. The psalm powerfully communicates the honest self-reflection of a person in need. Now, I find, I don't know about you, but I find it easy to read these words uh, that we just read. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. And I go, oh, God, I want you like that. God, I wish I desired you. I wish I felt that passionately about you. But friends, we must recognize that deep longing often comes from deep anguish. And David is running from his own son who is trying to kill him. He has been betrayed by his family and those closest to him and is now hiding in an incredibly rough wilderness, longing for God to meet him in his sorrow. Now, it would have been very easy for this situation to drive David to despair, to drive David to bitterness, to drive David to anger, but instead, it drove him to his God. It's God that he's seeking. And I'd like for us to just pause and think about our lives. Where do our moments of emptiness and want drive us? Do we find that in that moment that things don't go the way that I want, I just immediately go to bitterness and anger? Friends, bitterness and anger is when the circumstances aren't going the way you want, but you still want control. Right? That's what anger is. Anger is I'm fighting for control, but the circumstances won't let me hold on and control it. David's not trying to manipulate the situation. That's been taken away from him. He is sitting in a position of desperation. And there are times where in God's severe mercy, he will walk us into that same type of position where we're left without control. And we simply say, oh God, you are my God. I need you. My soul thirsts for you. In verses two through four, David's seeking recalls to mind former days when he would draw near to the Lord in the sanctuary and experience God's power and glory. But his reflection on the past doesn't produce despair. He doesn't allow nostalgia to lead him to a period of frustration like, oh, I wish it was like it used to be. Instead, his reflection on the past propels him to recommit himself to worship God in his present circumstance, to seek. And so we may say, what does it mean to seek God earnestly? Well, I think that we see something of an answer in verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. The pursuit of God for David is worth everything. In David's estimation, The loving kindness of God is better apart from life than having everything else without him. Or as Jim Elliott famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In this moment of desperation, David had laser-like clarity on what really matters. God. And so let us hear In this passage, in in verse three and four, my lips will praise you. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Let's hear these words of praise spoken by David in these verses, lest we be tempted to think that life walking through the desert is walking in faith, but grumbling with our mouths. We see that pattern. We know of a people who journey through the wilderness, but instead of singing psalms of faith and trust, they grumble and complain But that's not David's position. Friends, we see that in this psalm, even in the present wilderness, David says it cannot compare to the love of God. And how much more is this the case for us? who have seen the love of God revealed. We think of passages like 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. We have beheld the love of God. How much more can we glory in that in the midst of our wilderness traveling? And in fact, we we hear the words of our Lord that command us things like, seek first my kingdom, Or perhaps we should think about this little story that was told about a man who found a treasure in a field and in joy went and sold all that he had to buy the field. David's desert journey might have been lonely and dusty, but it was not quiet. And as Beth Tanner rightly says, the mouth that began dry and dusty is now full of praise and blessing for God but i think this psalm encourages us in a second way so we should certainly we should seek god honestly and earnestly, but we should also remember and rest. So look again there in verses five through eight with me. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you and the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. The first four verses describe David's longing and thirst for God, and then the image powerfully shifts in verse 5. The weary soul is finally satisfied. The seeking, thirsting, longing of verse 2 has found its end. And David says that he is satisfied in the comforts of his bed. The life that longed for water gets a feast. And what is the source of this transformation? What is the psalm point? How does this happen? Well, in verse 6, we read, if, in the Hebrew, or the ESV takes this as a temporal clause, when I remember and meditate on you. David declares that his satisfaction in God comes when he remembers and meditates upon God in the night. In the night, in that, that moment where the darkness surrounds us, when human fears creep in, when insecurities about enemies get on the rise, it's in that moment David says, I will send my thoughts to you, O God, and I will remember. Now, there are a lot of reasons why people study the Bible, but only one matters. We meditate on the words of God to grow in the knowledge of who He is and what He has done. Sometimes our Bible study, sometimes our meditation and our reading, sometimes it's challenging and difficult because we are indeed walking our desert path and being taught how to thirst for God. That certainly is the case. But we should also pause and think about how are we studying the Scriptures? If the New Testament indictment on the Pharisees teaches us anything... It is that it is certainly possible to become a professional scripturist and miss the God revealed in the scriptures. Does our meditation on the words of God produce soul-satisfying rest in the saving work of God? That's the goal, friends. That's the goal. And I want to say this again. I'm going to ask this question again. Does our meditation, our reflection, our study on the words of God produce soul satisfying rest in the saving work of God? And if you are honest with yourself and you say no, that's why you're here to work that out. Because that has to happen. We must find soul satisfying rest in God through the scriptures. Have we perhaps lost our sight, lost sight of how our specialization or research topic or area of interest ties into the saving narrative of God's kingdom? this is not to say that those things are not significant and important, but we must always ask, am I reading the word of God as the life-giving source of knowing God? And I think if you were to ask any professor here who's been wrestling with the scriptures for decades, they would tell you at some point in time, this is a living word and it impacts me. It changes me. I meet God in the text. And certainly that was the case for David. But David is not simply thinking about God in abstract terms. He's not just simply lying on his bed, rolling through metaphysical um, you know, thoughts about God. His satisfaction and savoring comes as he reflects on the mighty right hand of God, as he reflects on how God saves. So in language reminiscent of perhaps the the eagle's wings on which the Lord brought his people out of Egypt in Exodus 19, David says, I find rest beneath your deliverance and your protection. The God of the Bible is a saving God. He's a deliverer in times of trouble. David says, David's satisfaction in God deepens as he dwells upon the saving acts of God. So we can say, how do we... Find this type of satisfaction in God. Well, friends, I would encourage you, do what David does. Remember how God has saved you. Reflect, remember the mighty work of Christ on the cross. Live and breathe in the words of God daily and find that they are rich food that will satisfy our souls. And it's amazing how a satisfied soul is an incredible strategy in fighting sin right? And there's nothing more dangerous for me than going to the grocery store when I'm hungry. I don't know about you, but this is a horrible experience, right? You walk into a grocery store hungry, and it's like you walk out with $500 uh, worth of food, and I get home, and my wife's like, honey, why did you buy Hot Pockets? I'm like, I don't know. Everything looked incredible. I just, I grabbed it and threw it in the cart, you know? Um, And in the same way, it's amazing how that perspective changes when you're full, I had the the privilege of feasting with my good friends, the Matzes, last night on this new barbecue place they introduced me to, Hogjaw. It was phenomenal. Ate way too much. And certainly at the end of that meal, the thought of food just was like, oh gosh, no, no more, no more. I don't even want to think about food. No more food. I am satisfied. And if we think about this psalm, when we Live lives, and when we come to be full on truth, all of a sudden the lies of the junk food temptations are simply not very compelling because we are satisfied with what fills us as God's people. The soul in this psalm is at rest, it is filled, protected, and upheld. And I love the picture of verse 8 that we see my soul clings to you your right hand upholds me this beautiful reality of a soul clinging to God but at the same time it's God's hand that upholds me even as the psalmist seeks and worships and remembers he comes to a greater realization that it is actually God who is upholding him his security is not found in his efforts it's not found in his piety or his spiritual grip but the strong arm of God who saves and upholds his people. Those of you with small kids understand this. Two-year-olds cling. Mothers and fathers uphold. And the image is the psalmist says, I'm clinging to you, but it's the arm of God who upholds me. And if you are here or listening to this and you're you're saying, okay, I am road-weary. Remember and rest in the God of salvation. The wilderness will not last forever and satisfaction is in store for God's people. That's what David is resting in. And then in the final exhortation that we see in the psalm, seek God earnestly and honestly, remember and rest. And then the final encouragement that the psalm gives us in our journey, trust God with your future. In verses nine through 11, trust God with your future but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult for the mouths of liars will be stopped. These final verses kind of shift a little bit, right? And they reveal to us David's longing and his longing has given way to satisfaction. And this satisfaction in God has produced trust. In his protection against his enemies. David's expression of judgment on his enemies is believing that God would keep his promises to him, that God would take care of him. And while we do not glory or gloat over the death of the wicked, we too long for the future justice of God, do we not? Do we not look forward to a day when all evil and wicked in the world will be judged and the mouths of every liar? Even the very first one will be stopped and cast down. God has promised a day of deliverance for his people. Until then, we should, in the words of Paul, not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Paul would write to the church in Philippi. Now in verse 11, in verse 11 that we just read, David declares that the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exult. The passage seems to be spoken by David about his own reign. And instead of living in light of threats and fear of his enemies, he, the king, will rejoice in God. And all who swear by him, that is David, will also sing songs of praise. Why? Because David's throne will stand. The king, the final king from David's line, will endure threats. Will experience the wilderness. Will be attacked by liars. And like his fleshly father David, will be put in a grave. But God will vindicate this king. God will declare this son of David to be the son of God by raising him from the dead. As Paul writes in Romans 1-4, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And friends, truly, all who swear by this king shall rejoice. When we throw ourselves in with Christ, when we swear by him alone, we we give to him our utmost allegiance and our future is eternally secure. We can trust that this king will not fail and that nothing will ever come between us and the loving kindness of God, which is better than life. So as you continue your theological education here, I want to encourage you, fellow travelers, if you encounter roads in the wilderness... Don't panic. Don't assume something's wrong. It is quite likely that God is shaping you for what He has in store. We think we come to seminary or to college to be prepared for ministry and for the Christian life by just acquiring a lot of information. But seminary and college is not just informational. It's formational. That you are In process, you are on a journey, and I want you to hear these exhortations from Psalm 63. Seek God, remember and rest, and trust your future to the Lord who will care for you. And one final word, brothers and sisters, keep going. There's no going back, only passing through. Let's pray together. Oh God, you are our God And earnestly we seek you. I pray that you would expose the places in our lives that we have made in exchange for you for other things. I pray that in our moments of weakness, that in our moments of um, weariness from the journey, that God, you would drive us back to yourself. God, give us hearts that are truly satisfied in who you are and what you have done. Help us to press on in the Christian life, in Christian ministry, trusting our future to you. Lord, we pray that you would do all of these things in the name of the King of Kings, Jesus our Lord. Amen.